Regrets, mistakes, reflections. These are heavy words in any profession. The brilliant and ever-revered Maya Angelou used to say, when we know better, we do better. Welcome to Repicture, a podcast of the everyday projects that explores evolving conversations on the ethics and practices of visual storytelling. On today's episode of Repicture, we hear from photographers who look back and reflect on their storytelling. They discuss certain photos and assignments and what they learned in the aftermath. I'm Nyasha Kadandara, a filmmaker, storyteller, nomad and lover of mangoes, based in Nairobi, Kenya, but grew up in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. My motivation to take on this topic came from a personal experience and the aftermath of a terrorist attack at a hotel in Nairobi, where more than 20 people lost their lives. I shared some of this with Annie while we were setting up for our virtual interview. Hi. Hi, Annie. How are you? Good. I'm going to put my headphones on. Okay. In Kenya, there was a terrorist attack um, at one of the hotels, and I was like sitting in my house. And then I like immediately the journalist and me like t- took the camera and like went and started interviewing people. And if that happened today, I wouldn't even leave my house because the experience of asking people who've just dodged death, having to ask them what happened, and then having to report back to an editor who's asking you, rightfully so and fairly so. Well, we need to get a quote and we need to get this and we need to get that. I could never do. And I was like, I would never do this again because that's just not the kind of storytelling that I can do well. I really need to take time and sit with people and talk about random things before I even talk about the thing I need. Like, And that's why I do documentary, I guess, is because there are days we just drink tea and then there are days we ask difficult questions. So that's one of the things I learned and I didn't know until I was in that moment and I was like, I don't want to be here. So I figured, if I've had these moments in my career, moments in which I realize exactly what kind of filmmaker I want to be or not, certainly others would also be able to look back and reflect on what they've learned from their own discomforts and missteps along the way. Annie Tritt is a photographer best known for their project Transcending Self. For the project, Annie photographs transgender and gender-expansive youth. Through the images and the stories of these youth, they hope to challenge existing narratives about identity and help people to become more comfortable with being their true selves. Parallel to the project, Annie has also been stepping more into their true self, including sharing their self-identification and discovery process with the storytelling community and publicly documenting their recovery from top surgery. I wanted to interview Annie because they were really established in their career, and I hoped that this might yield for a more candid conversation. When you look at the Annie who um, started out as a photographer years ago and the Annie that I am talking to today, what has changed? Wow, so much has changed. I can't, I can't even imagine. Imagine sometimes that the Annie that started taking photos is the same person that I am. At the beginning, although my intention may be the same, 
I was really concerned about my career and I was really concerned about my ego and I was really concerned about what it meant to work for certain publications and what that meant about me. I also didn't do things that I would do now in pursuit of making my ego larger. And it breaks my heart a little, a lot, because this work is about such, it's about what it is to be human. And it's about how we can be better people. And it's about getting stories that need to be told out in the world. And that is antithetical to what at least I was trying to do. I discounted a lot of my ideas because they weren't, you know, I was told to find the hook and find what magazines are working for and all these things. And I thought, well, my idea doesn't fit into that. So I just didn't do a lot of things that now I wish I had done. When Katrina hit, I was in grad school. And luckily, I'm glad that the professors there said, don't go. But I didn't listen because I thought it was going to be good for my career. And that was 100% a mistake. Now, I didn't cause great harm in the world, sure. But I had no business being there. I was not, before that, talking about race in America in that way. I wasn't talking about global warming. I wasn't, anything that was happening there was not what I was focusing on. And I didn't know anything about the South. I didn't know anything about New Orleans. I, you know, I had no business being there. And all I was doing was taking up space and drinking water that somebody could have drank. And I had nothing to add to the conversation. And I did that specifically because I thought this is my chance for my career. And it breaks my heart that that made sense to me and a lot of my peers. I realized for me that what really speaks to me is more internal stuff. How depression or lack of a voice might affect a certain community. It's more subtle, quiet stories. And I still had those ideas, but I didn't pursue any of them because I thought, well, this isn't going to help my career. I can't do this. And, and it would have helped my career, even if no one published it, even if no one... I would have had the body of work. I would have been able to explain why I did it. I would have felt integrity inside me. And I would have been putting out my best work into the world. I mean, credit to your younger self. It's very hard because you get told that these are the stories people want. And like you said, this is the hook and why will people care, you know? I feel like working... In Africa, people are always asking me, like, yeah, but why will an international audience care about this? You know, how will I make them care? And I'm, I'm sort of at the point where I'm like, I don't, I don't care if you don't care. There's a, like a billion people on this continent, and I think they might give a shit. And even if it's not a billion people, maybe it's just a town. Maybe the story is just for them. And maybe that's okay. I, yes, I hear that. If we keep determining for people that they're not going to care then that's going to be true. And if we start in our hearts saying people are going to care, then some people will start caring. Do you think knowing all that you know, and even like you said, how you engage with race now compared to when you went, um, when you were in grad school, if something like Katrina happened today, you would be in a better position to tell that story? Yeah, but I still wouldn't go. It's not my story. It's such a responsibility to 
be some conduit for telling someone's story, you know? And to me, there has to be a reason why you're that person and that you can, why are you that person as opposed to someone else? Because I can't, like I said, I can't lose the individual. It's that person's personal story. And if there is someone that can tell it in a way that's much deeper than I can and has more profound connection and, you know, then they should be telling that story. Tell me about an image you took in your career that you wish you had taken differently. Oh my God. It's like every photo. I, it, it feels like every photo I've taken. If I look at almost all my images, I don't like looking at them because I can see what could have been better, mm-hmm. what could have been different. When I was doing more straight up journalism, I wasn't close enough. I think I, I stayed too far away from people. I'm looking through my photos in my head, but honestly, it feels like all of them. I, I just have to say, sorry, as you think that, as you're, you're, you're thinking about it is, I think it's really funny that you said that because I know a lot of other photographers who have asked this question who are, let's say, younger in their careers. And they're like, no, I, I stand by all my photos. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, there's nothing to be said. They're like, no, no, I, I, I stand by all of them. So it's, it's really refreshing <laughs> to hear you say, oh, they I think are. all of them. <laughs> Can you talk about some of the lessons you've learned in your career? Um, things that happened that were like turning, I would say like turning points and then how you conducted yourself. Like, for instance, when you talked about things that you were doing for your career in the name of advancing it, that now you wouldn't make those decisions or you do them differently. Other lessons that have then just been very pivotal in like who Annie is today as a photographer. The trans youth project I have is, is, is pivotal and there's, there are a lot of moments in it that have become pivotal. As I change as a person outside of photography, it affects my photography. And so as my life pivots outside work, I can't behave inside work in the same way I was before. As I became more clear that my ethics are more important than my job, which is kind of crazy to say, but that, that foregoing who I am as a person and what I stand for and what, how I need to be in the world was actually not helping my career anyway. Being myself in my career actually helped it as well. I'm doing better in every way, you know, both financially and now and the work I'm getting and the way I am. I came to realize too, was piecing apart, you know, what, what is it about this that I love? What is it about photography, about this work, about telling stories that, that I am good at? What are my strengths? And also what do I love about it? And when I could, piece that part out then I started bringing that to both my assignments and my personal work instead of trying to 
be a different person and photographer, which is what I think I was doing before. I know there's a tendency sometimes to get stuck, which I used to do, you know, in, in worrying so much about what's considered past mistakes or things we could have done differently. And then some people, it's really hard for them to think about it at all. Having these conversations has been difficult. You know, people are just trying to get by and make it and, and people saying something that might not get you hard or might make you think maybe you're not doing a good job or might offend someone. It's, I wish it happened more. I wish it happened a lot because the potential here is great. Like telling stories is how people learn. Maybe that, I guess that goes back to the point I was saying earlier when I asked other photographers about what they would do differently. It's just a, a flat out nothing. And um, when you have had more time in the, in, the, in the industry and in your career to find yourself and I guess, I don't know, it's, it's almost like you're on a surfboard and you know that you can still ride that wave and, and come out on top on the other side. It's you can you can say something but maybe for other photographers they're not at the phase where they can say oh i wish i could do this differently or reflect in an honest way because there could be backlash yeah and that's so unfortunate because that's how people learn and grow and you know mm. what do you want people to know or remember about your work i want people to see the beauty in others for being who they are. And I want people to see the beauty in themselves for being who they are and know that it's a lot like that's just, I'm just a photographer, but that that's what they bring to the world and that's what the world needs. So that's my huge intention <laughs> behind my silly little photographs. That's a great intention. While discussing this episode with the team at the Everyday Projects, Prior to recording, Peter DeCampo, co-founder of Everyday Africa and the Everyday Projects, realized he had a lot of thoughts about one of his own photo projects, Life Without Lights. Turns out, despite all the career success the project brought him, he has a lot of mixed feelings about the experience. So I decided to give him a call to learn more. It's recording? Yeah. Okay, because there's an interview I didn't record, so... I just have to ask. <laughs> and yeah, don't be nervous. Just be yourself. So tell me about why you started Life Without Lights. And now, how do you feel about the project however many years later? So I started this project called Life Without Lights. I was living as a Peace Corps volunteer in a village called Wantugu in northern Ghana which is a very um, a relatively remote part of the world, um, a couple hours from any major cities, uh, you know, a sort of mud hut village and no electricity. And people in the community were quite vocal about the electricity issue. I started photographing things that people could do, you know, despite not having electricity. And it became this sort of very aesthetic thing. I photographed only at night, people using lights, you know, flashlights or whatever to study, to um, grade papers, the you know, the teachers, to people dancing, people, you know, all these things that they would do 
with generators or other forms of mm-hmm. electricity. And I mean, I felt very good about that because it was something that people in the community were quite passionate about. They felt very left behind and abandoned by these politicians. Um, and a couple of years later, after I left, they actually did get electri- electricity um, in the yeah. village. So they have it now. So that's very cool. And do you think the work that you did contributed to that? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I will say it's a very small community that, you know, was not in international media. Wasn't um, in the limelight. Yeah, exactly. And so no one ever told me like, oh, yeah, we really felt that we, you know, had pressure to put electricity through these lines in this part of the world because, you know, because of this international attention. But it is possible that it contributed. Um, and... What it really did, though, was it got me a lot of attention as a photographer. It got me my first big awards. It got me into the seven seven photo agencies mentorship program and got me solo exhibitions and all these kinds of things. And, and you know, now I'm sort of like the everyday Africa person. But back then, and this was in uh, 2010, I was definitely like, oh, you're the guy that photographs you know in in the dark you're the life without lights person um so that was you know it was a big career boost for me and because of that I started to replicate it between me wanting to build my career and editors asking and I kind of took on this cause of like energy poverty energy poverty and wanted to make it a global project and so I did other chapters of it in the U.S. outside of Albuquerque in a sort of off-grid community and in Northern Iraq uh, and Kurdistan, those are the two sort of biggest ones, but I did it, you know, in a few different places. And and that's where, you know, thinking about reflecting, it's, I would have done things differently. I mean, to be honest, I, I think I would have said, okay, this Ghana thing was successful and I feel good about it and it's something the community wanted and now I should move on and do other projects. Once I started going in other places, you know, it really wasn't about community anymore it was about me it was about my career and my you know fulfilling editors desires and and so on um so it was like spinning the globe and being like there like there's a place without electricity i should go there and when i get there (laughs) you know they'd sort of be like well yeah this is kind of important or in some cases they had they had sort of chosen to live off grid because you know it was less expensive you know for example the place outside of albuquerque it was like well the inner city of albuquerque is very expensive for us so we chose to live here and you know it wasn't basically if you had asked them what what bothers you what do you want a journalist to cover electricity was not the issue exactly exactly and so now when you say that that the that original project did so much for your career and then led you to all of these new opportunities. How do you feel like you need to reconcile that sort of success and what it did for your career and ultimately being the kind of person who can start something like Everyday Projects and the fact that you wish you had done things differently? Everyday Africa and and the Everyday Projects, uh, I mean... They kind of grew out of my mistakes in a way, um, you know, and obviously Austin is, is you know, the co-founder of this, so I don't want to speak for him. But for me personally, it's like, uh, you know, we often 
I think we often, just for the sake of condensing the story, we tell the story of how everyday Africa is this sort of like eureka moment of like, oh, we should be doing something else. But it's it's much more gradual than that. And Life Without Lights came immediately before everyday Africa. And so I think because I was questioning the way journalism functioned and, and being, you know, going out and fundraising to continue this Life Without Lights project and sell it to editors and then occasionally just, or not occasionally, but by, by the end, all the time, feeling, uh, like I said earlier, like I was using people to illustrate my point um, and, and having this sort of top-down thing. Um, I'm not sure if the sort of awakening of everyday Africa would have happened without that or some version of it. Again, these, uh, phrasing it as sort of an awakening. I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't be the person I am now if I hadn't gone into these other cultures, had these experiences like Peace Corps, being an NGO photographer, doing Life Without Lights. They're all experiences I had that helped me sort of say, wait a second, what what is it in these systems that I don't agree with how they work? Um, and I wish there was a way to short circuit that because it feels like, you know, you're some white American guy who goes out into the world and then learns that things are wrong. But how do you do that without having to use people as your learning opportunity? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't think you're the only one that's gone through that experience. I think lots of us have gone through the experience of how do we, and like, I like the fact that you talk about how we unfortunately use people to get something and then realize like, but surely there has to be a different way to do this. Talking to Peter made me think back to my experience covering the terrorist attack yet again. That nagging and uncomfortable feeling of using people to get a soundbite to meet a deadline. When I shared some of my experience with Peter, it led him to ask me some interesting questions. And has that changed how you've you know, approached similar things since then? Or have you stayed away from similar things since then? Or I think if it happened now, maybe I would go and, I don't know, I think I would go and donate blood and then offer support to other journalists who decided they wanted to be there and say, do you need a power bank? Do you need a battery? Do you need some water? I think that would be the most useful thing I could do. I don't know if there's a right way to do that kind of reporting because I left it feeling so icky um and i'm i I, then at the same time i feel very conflicted because i know that someone has to do the work and someone has to go down and report so i just don't i i still haven't quite figured it out i just think i know for me it's it wasn't a good decision and i feel bad about like the people that i i approached because i just didn't know how to approach them it's interesting that you learned about yourself, but also still feel very strongly that someone's got to be doing this. So do you think other people are having these conversations? Are they, are they, you know, are there, are other journalists talking about, you know, how do I best approach that? Are they just sort of rushing in and doing it or, yeah. I think sometimes people are, I think a lot of times we're having these conversations after the fact. I think it's very, it's tricky, you know, I think also we come from an industry where when people make mistakes, it just, it's it's like your career is over. And so it's so hard for people to then say, I made a mistake. 
and there's different types of mistakes you know there's factual errors that completely change a story there's how you deal with you know characters and subjects it's um you know the angle of the story there's many different ways you could have a mistake but i think we're so scared in in and of such a fragile industry where a lot of people working independently as freelancers it's just like there's no space and i was even going to ask you when we've been talking about this reflections episodes and how to even approach people and make people feel comfortable to be able to feel like they can talk about the, their past and their work and how things have changed it's really tricky and you almost feel like people aren't having the conversation as often as i think they would partly because there isn't a safe space what do you think it's interesting you know that you brought up career ending mistakes you know that that if often if you make a mistake in this industry it's it's one one mistake can be the end of your career but i think it really depends on the type of mistake i think that if in your case for example um talking about the you know the coverage of the of the hotel it's like the career ending mistake is if you didn't get the quotes which is very unfortunate <laughs> you know it's like yeah. stopping and thinking and wanting to be considerate and and wanting to be ethical and wanting to really think through the best thing to do here those are not often the actions we're rewarded for mhm and and that to me is really unfortunate When Peter took the time to stop and think about life without lights, it did lead to positive things for him. Without that reflection, everyday Africa and the everyday projects might not exist today. But not everyone's blunders lead to bliss. And I think a lot of people are still afraid to process and talk to others about their missteps, whether out of fear for their career or fear of judgment from their peers. We are much quicker to share links of our published work and the awards we win. I think about the potential lessons we miss by not slowing down and talking to each other about how we are uncomfortable with decisions we've made and situations we found ourselves in as storytellers. We need to be more honest with ourselves and make more space for these conversations. I really wanted to include as many photographers as possible on this episode. We cast a really wide net, inviting photographers to share, and only three brave souls responded with voice notes from Paraguay, Nigeria, and Ukraine. Hello, my name is Santi Carneri. I am a photographer, journalist, and I make video documentaries. I was born in Argentina, South America, but I grew up in Spain, Europe. I have no indigenous heritage. My family are Argentines from that came from Italy and Russia uh, two generations ago. I returned to South America at the age of 24, first to Brazil and then to Paraguay as a junior correspondent for the European Press Agency. Since I arrived uh, 8 years ago, I was lucky enough to be in charge of issues related to social rights, social struggle, racism and about the environment. This brought me closer and closer to indigenous peoples, uh, their lives and processes. I traveled to many of their communities and focused on accompanying their struggles always related to land, discrimination, ra- racism and colonialism. 
I was so moved and angry to learn about reality through their stories. I used to believe that journalism gives voice to the voiceless until I realized that all these people have their own voices and much stronger and more solid than mine. And I understood that I have to put my work at the service of those voices and give space for them to be heard. Four years after arriving to South America, I began to question my own images and to look for readings on the subject. I began to read uh, indigenous authors and South American critics of the mass media and to review all my work, uh, eliminating from my archive the images that re-victimized or showed the men, women and elderly boys and girls that I photographed as people without voice. Since then, I started to think a lot more about the images I am looking for. I began to ask a lot more to the people I photograph how they want to be photographed. I learned to listen better, uh, to talk a lot before starting to take photos, and to agree with people the use of those images before making them and, of course, before publishing them. I continue working with indigenous people of Paraguay. I promote from Everyday Paraguay the work of indigenous photographers such as Melanio Pepanji. I keep training and trying to avoid that famous syndrome of the white savior who believes that his photos save the world. I give less importance to my work and much more to the others. My name is Etienne Born live and work in Nigeria. Okay, so in 2018, I got my first assignment for Wall Street Journal. And um, one of the photos that I submitted had, you know, this baby that he he had some sort of um, skin condition. And then I photographed him with his mom. Because actually his mom came up to me and said, photograph me and my son. And then I filed the photo. But, you know, thankfully it wasn't used it looked like one of those images that I now understand to, you know, that sort of have a way that it depicts Africans, you know, that type of thing. Oof. Yeah, I mean, if I think of it, there was just something about it. It felt like those images that I grew up seeing of Africans. But when I look at the knowledge I had from 2018 to now, yeah, I don't think that I would have, you know, found that photo and I'm happy that it wasn't used. My name is Sergei Korovaini. I'm a Ukrainian photographer and videographer and part of Everyday Eastern Europe team. I'll tell you a story about a project I had to done in a different way and it's probably my biggest regret in my career. I was born and raised in a small town near Donetsk and uh, in the uh, spring of 2014, uh, my hometown with many other uh, towns and places was uh, occupied uh, by uh, Russian-backed separatists and uh, Ukrainian-Russian uh, conflict uh, began. So-called unrecognized Donetsk People's Republic was established so I had an access to that territory because my family was still living there and they are still living there. Between 2014 and 2016, I visited uh, this place a, a few times. And, uh, you know, I was 
pretty young photographer and obviously I had a camera with me and I took pictures, but I didn't really believe that something happening in my town, something happening with my family and with the region uh, overall can be interesting for, uh, you know, for anybody, because for me it was so um, obvious uh, and so usual uh, stuff. I didn't really finish a uh, project um, at that time and I didn't put enough efforts into it. And then in 2016, um, I stopped uh, visiting my family because uh, it became pretty dangerous for me as for Ukrainian journalist. And, you know, I'm still regretting that. Now I understand that uh, even if the story seems to be personal and very obvious for for us as for photographers, it could be still interesting and uh, important for our audience. I had a unique perspective of this place. I had a unique access, but uh, you know the project, uh, which could be done in the very beginning of the conflict, in the very beginning of the situation, is lost for me forever. Sometimes I see pictures made in my home region by other photographers, most of them Russians who have uh, full access. And it's a painful experience. And I just feel that it's not fair. As a local, as a Donbass born, I have uh, rights to go there and to tell stories that I feel as an insider. I still wait for the opportunity to to do my stories in my hometown, but I feel it. I could uh, wait for another, I don't know, ten or twenty years uh, to do so. It's inspiring to me to hear how Santi took the initiative to clean out his archive and how Etiosa took a good look at how she wanted to portray her fellow Africans. But it's also a little heartbreaking to hear Sergei's experience. We can't go back in time to unmake photographs, nor can we capture moments that we've missed. But we can look forward and think about the stories we will tell tomorrow and how we will tell them. Like hundreds of other journalists, in 2016, Josue Rivas went to North Dakota, drawn by the protests surrounding the U.S. government's decision to build an oil pipeline that passes through the land of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. The protests became an international symbol for indigenous rights and climate change activism, but didn't stop the pipeline. Today, it's operational, but its future remains uncertain due to ongoing lawsuits and environmental reviews. After spending several months telling stories from the Standing Rock Reservation, Josue has thoughts on what he would have done differently and has a pretty clear idea of what he wants the future of storytelling to look like. Josue right now knows that I don't want the future. Like when, when we look back in 25 years and we do another podcast, I don't want us, I don't want us to be talking about Oh, yeah, look, here it is. We're still at the same paradigm of colonizing people through photography and through stories and, and, not, and not 
honoring the dignity of their own story. Like this is their own story. And yeah, we, we've normalized um, extracting people's stories. And I will say these things out loud. And I think people, and I still, I still think people get freaked out sometimes, but I'm like, it's okay to acknowledge those things. Just because someone says, Hey, this, this room is, you know, it's very white. That doesn't mean I hate white people. It means, Hey, have you all noticed this? And can we do something to make it a little bit more, you know, equitable because, because these are the people that are shaping our reality. Like these are literally the people who put out, a, you know, a, a article and millions of people will see it. So when you have a lack of diversity there, then the reality of, of humanity is, is it's also limited. So thinking about like the media industry is like, I never agreed to, for example, using the word subject. Like, I don't want to subject anybody to anything. I think that we need to upgrade it. Like we literally need to write a new language of photography. And, and I know I've, I've, I've been, I've been thinking about that and I really want to partner up if anybody out there is like, Hey, I want to, I want to make this happen. But, um, re like, like reclaiming our sovereignty when we speak about photography and, and in the industry, especially because, you know, if we look at a New York times, uh, article that says like, you know, subject or shooting or taking or capturing, like we're still, we're still cool with that. So when you look at yourself, the Jose who started out as a photographer years ago, and the Jose that's talking to me now, how has he changed? If you were to say, how have I evolved? I will, I will definitely say that back then when I started off, I did not understand the power of photography yet. And I think that it wasn't until, until Standing Rock happened in 2016. And then beyond that, where my awareness and my, you know, I guess you can say my, my, my paradigm um, about image making and about what it can do, what it can actually do for humanity, it's, it, it really shifted and, and evolved rapidly. Um, this was because of just understanding that the effect that images have had on us and that keep having on us and that will have on us in the future. I'm going through a huge transformation of understanding that power and how you can use the medicine in that power to do good for humanity. So for example, thinking about the way, um, especially like indigenous peoples around the world are going to be able to, to see themselves in the future right now. So the future is now. You know what I'm saying? So like, if you don't visualize yourself in the future, then you won't be in the future. So like my goal, my goal right now is to be, to be very aware that if we give the tools to people to visualize themselves in the future, then we won't be colonizing the future. Tell me about an image you have taken in your career that you wish you would have taken differently. I would have gotten a 360 camera and, and, and document the standing rock with a 360 camera. That's one thing I, I, I would have done. Cause it's, yeah. Like even thinking about like virtual reality, like imagine, imagine being able to go back to that moment. For example, in my case, like standing rock and relive some of those moments in with a with a, you know, Oculus like headset. And what do you think the impact of people seeing themselves in an immersive environment would have been versus how Standing Rock was mostly documented, which was 2D. At, you know, at the end, we just want people to have empathy for what's happening, um, especially when it is about, um, for example, with Standing Rock, about indigenous folks 
um, stepping into a into a new place in in the consciousness of America, you know, and in really in the world because it became a worldwide movement. So I think that a lot of it was, you know, a, a lot of photographers, for example, from New York were, you know, and like other places throughout the country that were sent by large publications only when there was conflict, only when there was this big thing happening, right? And I really felt that that was more damaging than helpful for for what was intended, I think, and what was also happening at Standing Rock. There was a there was a ceremony, you know. Aside from all these direct actions and protests, there was also a, a humongous ceremonial element to it that I think got completely lost through through the coverage of of mainstream media and freelancers where they were looking for that one photo of the tipi with the, you know, the person with the headdress and the person, you know, looking sacred. And and, they, and then at the same time, they're like, whoa, let's go check the cops. And, oh, you know, natives versus police, you know. And, and it was like, wait, hold on, guys. This is not the story that it's only happening. There's also some, like, if you go back to the camp, you will see the grandmother, like, teaching grandchildren how to speak their language for the first time. Why don't you document that? But it was not interested. So I think that 360 would have allowed like for us to sit down with a grandmother while she's teaching, you know, these this grandchildren how to speak their language. And then you can be in there too, because you have this immersive experience. And that that creates compassion and, and understanding, hopefully, for wow, this is way more than what you know CNN told me it was. Do you think that the photo community has fostered a conducive environment for people to have these conversations? I think that, yeah, I think they're trying hard. I mean, I think that there's also a lot of grassroots, uh, grassroots, you know, movements like the Photo Bill of Rights, like, you know, women photograph, you know, black women photograph, um, authority collective, everyday projects, obviously. Just folks that are just doing the things that need to get done because nobody else is going to do them for them. And I think that that's a great start, but I, I would really like to see like corporations, like kind of like tap into this, you know, and now more than ever, you know, silence is violence, you know, and, 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 and it really means that, you know, as, as we're looking at an industry that has been for the most part, you know, extractive and, and, and also, in a lot of ways damaging to specifically indigenous peoples in the United States and, and throughout the continent. And it's time to say, well, you know what? I actually disagree with the way that we're doing these things. And if enough people do that, if enough people stand up to the systems that are already, you know, put upon us by when since we're born, you know, that we just cool with it. Then more people are going to rise up and, uh, I know this quote from uh, from an activist, uh, John Trudell, who said, when enough raindrops come together, they become the power of the storm. Nice. Thank you. I really like that saying. If enough raindrops come together, come together. we can, the power be, of the storm. can become the power of the storm. I like that. My sincere thanks to Annie, Peter, and Josue for their openness and honesty in our conversations, and to Santi, Etiosa, and Sergey for their voice notes. Click over to our website, wepicture.org, to find links to their work and more about the everyday projects. Like what you heard today? Please share, subscribe, 
leave us a review. And while you're at it, do tell your friends and colleagues to give us a listen. Have a clever idea for an episode? Or know someone who you think we should interview? Email us at repicture at everydayprojects.org. The Everyday Projects is supported in part by Open Society Foundation's Culture and Art, Code for Africa, Africa No Filter, and Adobe. This episode of Repicture was produced by Tasneem Al Sultan, Eli Gardner, and me, Nyasha Kadandara, with the support of our team at the Everyday Projects, Austin Merrill, Peter DeCampo, Rebecca Gibeon, Washeran Jaggi, John Edwin Mason, and Danielle Viasana. With music by Blue Dot Sessions and original theme by Hassan Hujeri. <laughs> <laughs>